Today will be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking specifically at verses 9 through 12, but if you would open there with me, we'll read from there. In chapter 2, Paul has been describing his ministry as a defense of his ministry and of his faith and of the faith he taught. He's fighting against his usual enemies here, not just uh, the Judaizers who were fewer, but also the those who would synchronize with the pagan religions of the day, with the Greek and Roman religious views and their philosophies. And they're coming in and saying, we're better than Paul, and our truths are better than the truths Paul preaches. And Paul here is giving his defense of both his ministry and his preaching in this chapter. So why don't we look there? We'll read the first 16 verses of the chapter to help get us proper perspective. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that in our coming to you it was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous for you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you to encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So you also, so as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this next section, 
where Paul speaks of ministering to them as a father. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and to understand and to get a good perspective on his ministry and on his heart and on his desire and his love for the people. And as, Lord, we take that as an example of how all church leaders should be, pray that we would help us to encourage one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, again in this section, calls them as witnesses about his ministry. And this is all part of one big long passage from verse 1 down to verse 12 of chapter 2, talking about his ministry and his behavior towards the people in his ministry. Remember, he ministered under God, under the calling of God, in front of God, with God as his witness, and he ministered the, the gospel of God, as God had called them to do and instructed and entrusted him with. They did that ministry faithfully and completely. They were not peddling it for profit, only picking out the good pieces that people wanted to hear in hopes of earning money, but they were sharing the whole counsel counsel of God with them, which would bring to them persecution and bring to them troubles. And that was one of his proofs that we're not doing this for us. If we were, we wouldn't talk about the things you hate. We would only talk about the things you love. We would only talk about the things that make you happy. Only talk about the things that you know make you give us money, give us power, give us prestige. No, we talk about the things even you hate, because that's what God wants us to do, to share his whole counsel with you. So in spite of their fierce opposition, they didn't waver at all. They didn't water down the message. They didn't make it acceptable. Because men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness will only accept certain things, and they won't accept the truths of God. And now he moves on here to say that we labored night and day to pay for our own keep. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this because it does get confused in modern society from time to time. Uh, Paul mentions their labor and toil three times in his writings with the same words. They translate it differently every time, which surprises me. Uh, the first word can mean a striking or a beating, which some interpret as uh, labor such as you know hitting things with a hammer and doing physical hard work because it's meaning outside of that tends to be laborious toil and trouble. Work that makes somebody weary. The hard physical labor, we can think of Paul's tent making as being like that. Tents in that day were generally made out of leather to be waterproof and out of woven uh, lamb's fur to be you know be sheltered and warm. And that's very heavy. And you weren't making a little pup tent for one person or two people. You were making a house, practically. And that was a lot of hard work. The second word carries a little stronger meaning because it has more to do with difficulties. A hard and difficult labor, toil, travail, hardship, distress. Those are the words it's translated with. And it carries the idea of labor to overcome difficulties. Not just a hard physical labor, but a hard physical labor to overcome the difficulties and the trials. And he uses the same phrase in his 2 Corinthians 11 passage, where he talks about all the things he has suffered in the service of God, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the dangers, 
the difficulties, and he mentions amongst them the, the same thing, our labor and our toil for you. Uh, we see this phrase in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 7, verse 7 to 9, and I want to read that because it adds a couple of details. He's talking about the same thing, our original coming to Thessalonica, what it was like, and he mentions that here in chapter 2, verse 7, and in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 through 9, he says, For yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have a right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul is clearly stating they earned money to buy their own food. That's what he's talking about. They labored for that. And we know about his tent-making ministry from his time in Corinth. In the book of Acts, chapter 18, he talks about this in the first four verses. After these things, Paul left for Athens, or left from Athens and came to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Apparently there was fighting between the Jews and the Gentile Gentile Christians and the unbelieving Jews, and that conflict was stirring up and made the Romans angry, and they kicked all the Jews out of of the city, and so out of Rome, and so he had come here. And he came to them, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, made things. For by their occupation they were tent makers, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Saturday and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So that was normal for Paul to try and earn his own way. Now he speaks of earning his own way often. And one of the times is when he spoke to the Ephesian elders. Remember he's on his way to to Jerusalem to bring an offering for the poor there. And he's been told everywhere he goes that he'll be arrested and beaten and imprisoned. And he says to them, you yourselves know that with these hands I ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. So in other words, I made the money for all of my team to eat with my own hands. And in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. And of course, he's also talking about the offering he's taking with them. But he's talking about his purposes and his reasoning. And later in the book, he says in chapter 4, 11 through 13, to the present hour we hunger and thirst and are poor, poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He was going out with the gospel to the Greek world, and he was not being like the Greeks. They were, you know, they would go around in their teaching and they would accumulate followers who would make donations and take care of them and raise them up. And Paul was not that kind of man. 
And so he made a point in his ministry amongst the Greeks to earn his own money, to pay his own way. See, we're not just peddlers of philosophy like you're used to, looking to get you to give us money. We're giving you something more valuable than money. We're giving you ourselves, and we're giving you the gospel. Now, you might be tempted from all of this to think that maybe ministers and missionaries shouldn't be paid. But remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, are they the only ones who have to earn their own way? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, notice he says rightful claim, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we have endured anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying, (coughs) we have every right to be paid, we have every right to expect those we are serving to give us our keep, you know, to give us our food and our shelter and our clothing and our needs. But we haven't done that because we don't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. He spells this out a little more clearly in 1 Corinthians he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 15 through 18, But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing you these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground of boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. He was commissioned directly by Christ himself. Woe to me, he says, if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That my, in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so not to make use of my rights in the gospel. He continues on <coughs> in 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 7. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel for you free of charge. Now note this, verse 8. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. So he was working to support himself at times, but at other times, offerings had come in from other churches to help finance his ministry in starting church planting. Because when he was church planting, the people, well, they weren't even believers at first, and he wasn't going to burden them with needing to support him. He wanted to establish the work of God, preach the gospel for free, and establish the churches without being a burden. 
He said, when I was with you and in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And so I will refrain, so I refrained and will refrain from being a burden to you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And so you see, he is fighting a war against these false apostles, these unbelievers who are claiming to be as good as him. And one of the ways they stumble is they were doing this out of greed. And Paul is assuring them, I didn't you know, soften the message so that you would give me money. I didn't ask for money. I supported myself amongst you because I am not like these people who's, you know, the shepherds who feed only themselves. I'm not like these godless people who are cheating you and defrauding you and exploiting you and leading you on a path to hell. And that's why he was not willing to take money from them. But no, he was getting it from other churches. At times he was working on his own to support himself. He did what he needed to do. He goes on to call them as a witness again about how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct towards you believers was. He didn't fleece the flock. He wasn't lording it over them. He was being like a nursing mother, gentle, not a burden to them, but loving them and caring for them. And that's what he wants them to understand in all of this. So again, he's not saying he doesn't expect to be paid for his work. He's saying God requires that. He's saying he didn't take it from them to show them the difference between himself and those who were only feeding, the vault shepherds who were only feeding themselves. So he was as gentle as a nursing mother to them, we saw last week. And now, he expresses now he was as diligent as a father with his own children. Verse 11, how does a father care for his children in the Bible? Well, in the Old Testament, that duty has always been there in the covenant family as an obligation of the fathers to train their children. In Genesis 18:19, God says, For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. And so even with the beginning of the called separated people, Abraham, God expected him to train his children and his household to follow the Lord and to keep him. Uh, Moses, near the end of his life, just before the people were to enter the promised land, after the unbelieving generation had died off in the desert because of their rebellion against God and their unbelief, he gives them the law a second time. And that's the meaning of the name Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. And he gives that in chapter 5, in chapter 6, 
He says to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. We remember these. Right? That Jesus quotes that as the summary of the first table of the law. And verse 6, he continues, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Now, Paul is a Jew and a teacher of the Old Testament law, trained in Judaism to be a teacher, a rabbi. And when he's talking about what a, you know, like a father with his children, this is what he has in mind, training the children. It's a major theme of the Old Testament and a major theme of the book of Proverbs, especially. Proverbs chapter 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And in chapter 4, the first verses. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you might gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. That is Solomon speaking of his own father and of his his own intentions as a father. Teaching them to follow the Lord, teaching them to obey the Lord. And this is what Paul would have in mind as he's telling them, like a father with his children, when I was with you. Now, that training in the book of Proverbs, especially, and in Israel, often included some difficult discipline. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but who loves him will be diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 13:24. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Proverbs 19:18. A rebellious son who would not obey and would not submit himself to his father, to the word of God, to the commandments of God, was brought, was ordered to be brought to the front gate of the city to be tried and to be stoned. Because God, as their God and their king who walked amongst them, did not want to see that in his city, in his camp, amongst his people. But he says, do not... Put your heart on putting him to death. Discipline him because there's hope. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 19:15. There's a danger for fathers and their children in not showing your children the way he should go, and it's very serious. He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of the fool has no joy. Proverbs 17:21. And a foolish son is ruined to his father. And a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Proverbs 19.13 You know, the son left to himself would become a problem for the father, to the family, a disgrace. Uh, We see this in the Old Testament. We, We can all probably picture a few good examples. Eli's son. They were very wicked. Samuel's sons. They were very wicked. In fact, Samuel's son's wickedness was the excuse of the people for saying, we want a man as our king. As if they were implying that God had failed 
in Samuel's sons, and therefore they wouldn't have God as their king anymore, but they would have a man. Uh, David and his sons. Remember Ammon raped and despised his daughter Tamar? Said he loved her, and after he raped her, he despised her and hated her. Uh, David's failure to discipline his son led to what? Another son, Absalom, murdering Ammon. Uh, Later, Ammon leads the great rebellion against David, and he's driven out of Jerusalem. And Absalom sleeps with all the concubines on the roof in the view of everybody to show them that he is greater than his father. Terrible disgrace to David because of his failure to discipline his sons. Doing it right leads to rewards, however. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Proverbs 23:24-26. Ultimately, God's blessings come upon a family and upon the children because the father is diligent in training the children in the way they should go and doesn't leave them. Now, how does the father care for his children in the New Testament? We get an extra little bit of insight, a strong reminder, really. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, Colossians 3.21. If the father's discipline is too harsh and not constructive and not helpful and not done in a positive manner, you know, a working and helpful and biblical manner, children become angry. They become discouraged, especially if the father is too harsh. That's why Paul says, like a nursing mother, I cared for you before he says, like a father. Uh, There's a broad line between discipline and abuse, but there's a much finer line between discipline that's helpful and discipline that's hurtful. And it's a hard line to walk. We also know of our Heavenly Father's discipline. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 12, where he says that everyone he accepts as a son, he chastises. And he does that out of love. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So Jesus says, our Heavenly Father prunes us so we'll be more fruitful. Cuts out the dead dead wood from our life. Those things that we hang on to, those sins, those worldly desires and possessions that mean more to us than God, he cuts them out. He also prunes off those things, those suckers that dry out our, our energy and our life. If you've ever cared for plants or vineyards, you know, fruit trees or grapevines, you've got to cut off the suckers, you've got to prune off the dead wood, you've got to keep it vibrant and alive and growing. And he says that's what God does in our life, and that's really what discipline is. And all of this is in Paul's mind when he says, like a father to his children, I ministered to you. Now in verse 12, 12, 
we see him explaining how exactly he ministered to them. And it starts off with the words exhorted and encouraged. These are rather gentle words. You know, there's rebuke, there's correct, there's discipline. He said, I exhorted and I encouraged. I exhorted, I came alongside you and led you. Uh, Like a nursing mother alongside her child, he encouraged them. Encouraged them to walk in Christ. Encouraged them to be holy, for I am holy, as God says in Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, and quoted in 1 Peter 16. Paul was gentle with them, and as a father, he led them, he guided them, he exhorted them to walk according to the walk that he had learned from the Father. He did this for them. He didn't do this so they would give him more money. He didn't do this so they would glorify him. He didn't do this so they would make him their leader. He did this for their souls and for God's glory. He didn't do it for his own glory. He didn't do it for power. He didn't do it for money. He didn't do it for fame. Not all of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. That was not his motivation. His motivation was like a father who longs for his children to be righteous, to grow up knowing the Lord, to grow up following the Lord, to grow up loving the Lord. He exhorted them and encouraged them for that purpose. And what did he exhort them to do? Walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul gives that exhortation so many times in the New Testament. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. The gratifying the desires of the flesh to sin is the opposite of what will please God. And he wants you to be pleasing to God. He wants us to be pleasing to God. He wants the people he was ministering to there in Thessalonica to please God. So he says, walk by the Spirit and then you won't do the things that God hates. He says in Ephesians 4, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So again, he calls them to that walking worthy of their calling. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Again, that walk with God, he says here it is walk with love, as Christ loved us. In, later in Ephesians 5, he says, For one time you were in darkness, but now you are in light, in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in everything that is good, right, and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So part of our walk worthy of God is to walk in a manner pleasing to him, to try and discern that, to understand what he requires, what he wants from the word, and follow that. You note all of the passages in the Old Testament talked about instructing them in the following of the Lord and disciplining them to follow the instruction they'd received. If we want to please God, we will walk as children of light, according to all that is right and true and good, which we find in the Bible, 
and understand then what is right to, before God. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or see you, I, in absence, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 Walk worthy of God, walk worthy of the gospel, walk worthy of your calling. They're all about the same thing. Living our life for God. And that was his teaching to them as a father. And that was the teaching of an Old Testament father to his children. This is what God says he wants. This is what you should do. This is why you should do it, because you want to please God. And we see that in all of his... Paul's callings to walk according to a manner pleasing to the Lord. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will, the Bible, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so we have a few more things given to us. Fully pleasing to God, yes, and how is that done? By bearing the fruit of good work, by increasing in the knowledge of God. There is value in studying Scripture to know God better because that in itself is pleasing to God. The closer we draw to him through knowledge, the more we please him and the more he is glorified and the more happy he is that we are walking worthy of him because that is part of our worthiness. It says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Pleasing God according to what we were taught. Now, John makes similar exhortations, and we've talked about John recently, and so I'll just read a couple of them. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light, is he in the light? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So walking in the light, remembering, of course, uh, John 3:16 and following, that we walk in the light means we shun sin, walk according to the things God has called us to walk according to. Uh, continuing in chapter 2, verse 4 to 6, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. So our walking with him... Walking in the way he walked is keeping the commandments of God. And that's what Paul is driving at here. We know what God wants. We know what pleases God. We know what pleases the flesh. They're at opposite ends of each other, fighting each other, at war with each other. And we should therefore walk according to what pleases God. And all this teaching that we have seen... You know, we are to follow what God has told us is right and what God tells us is wrong. Not what our heart tells us, because our heart is deceitful beyond all things and desperately wicked, incurable. 
We only do what God's word says, what God has said is right. And who, who does he say this to? Oh, and there's only one way to walk, and that is, we already mentioned this, but he is, as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. So the idea Paul is driving at here is, while I was gentle, as, as with a mother with her newborn babe, so I was also like a father encouraging and exhorting you to walk according to the word, to walk in what is right, to live your life for God. You cannot have God as your Savior without God as your Lord. You cannot have God as your Savior and your Lord unless you're walking according to what he commands us to walk in the Scripture, unless you're doing what is right. If you have discarded what is right, as many men do, and live according to their own passions, then you're not walking according to the Scripture and you don't know God, you don't know Christ at all. And that's the problem that Paul is fighting against. And he says, as you know, a newborn mother cares for her suckling child, as a father exhorts and encourages his own children, that's how I was with you. Because that was my desire. My desire was not to be rich, to be powerful, to be honored, to be respected, to be lifted up on a throne. My desire was to see you living a life pleasing to God and enjoying the joy of the Lord that comes from living right with him. And who did he do this to? Well, if we look in our passage, we exhorted each one of you. Calling to walk in a manner worthy of God is not something just for elite Christians. It is a calling for every Christian without fail. And John makes that clear. If you don't walk as Jesus walked, then you don't know God, you don't abide in God, you don't have Christ, you're not saved. This is an evidence of your salvation that you walk in Christ. He made this to everyone. I remember when I first became a Christian, I heard about there being a Sunday night service and a Wednesday service, but I wasn't sure I was allowed to go because, you know, I wasn't a very good Christian. I was a new Christian. And it wasn't until somebody actually invited me, <laughs> until the pastor invited me, that said, is it okay for me to come? And I thought, oh, that's for the elite Christian. And there are many who want to live their life. You know, there are us who live our life for ourselves, and there are those elite Christians. But there's no such thing. There's no distinction. We are all to be elite Christians. We are all to be struggling against sin, struggling to learn about God and know God better and to walk nearer to him. Paul then moves from reminding them of what God expects of his children to what he's already done for them at the end of verse 12. It is God who has called us. Remember Paul's golden chain of salvation there in Romans 8, 28 and following? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he chose, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those he predestined, he called. And so to be called, if you were called, it was because God had chosen you from before the foundation of the earth and predestined you to that calling. And those whom he called, he justified. There's no point in there where you can be called by God 
and not be justified by the blood of Christ. And being justified here, of course, means having all of our sins paid for on the cross, being innocent when we stand before God, being declared innocent and welcomed into heaven. All those he justified, he glorified. And that's being welcomed into heaven, the glory of God. We should remember that golden chain of salvation because that's what he's talking about when he says what he says here, that the God who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory, that calling of God is a calling to salvation, a calling to glory in the kingdom of God. And it is calling with certainty in him. And so if you've been called, you should not only be rejoicing, but you should then be walking as Jesus walked. And that's really his point in this section. We have that obligation. He writes of it in all of his letters. But here he is telling us he taught that, not as an overlord with a club in his hand going around beating people, not calling them up front and mocking them for their sins, but like a newborn baby is with his mother, like a child is being instructed by the father, so the church was with Paul. And that is the way God's people should be with each other and God's leaders. The pastors and the elders and the teachers should be when they teach. I think there's a contrast being made by Paul here between himself and these false teachers who were going around. They were in it for the money. They were in it for the power. They were in it for the glory. And as such, they were exploitive. They were abusive. They were arrogant. They were condescending. And people needed to be able to see that contrast between them. And that was part of the reason why Paul was willing to suffer rather than make use of the rights he had, was so that they could see that distinction between the false teachers and the right teachers. Now we see that in this day and age when you look at the things going on in megachurches and how they become multi-billionaires and have many mansions and many Mercedes or all those things. They're exploiting the people. Whereas the pastor, even the pastor in a large church, he understands his place before God. His reward is in heaven, not on earth. They don't, Bible-believing ministers who have a big church and have a successful ministry don't tend to live in mansions and drive luxury cars and have servants. That's not what they're about. That distinction, I think, is maintained to this very day. And it's a distinction we need to remember when we read about all that Paul was willing to suffer, when we see him being abused, when we see him poor and hungry and thirsty and cold and sleeping outdoors and being hounded from town to town and beaten and flogged and slandered, we know that he did this all out of love for the people that they would come to know Christ, that they would be elevated in Christ, that they would be brought to glory in Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the example of Paul who is willing to suffer the loss of all things that he might be a good witness and a faithful witness to you. That he is willing to to be poor and to be humbled and to suffer for your namesake and for your kingdom's sake, but also so that he could be as a nursing mother to her child as a father with his children, 
leading your people from paganism to glory. We pray, Lord, that we would remember his sacrifices. And as we read the things that he teaches, that we would understand and remember that the things he teaches, he teaches out of love for you, out of love for your kingdom, out of love for those people made in your image who have been called by you, that he might lead them to a better life, a closer life to you, a life that brings glory to you, that he sacrificed, that his teaching might be understood, might be listened to, might be heard, not as the teaching of men, but as he says later in this chapter, as the very words of God. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts as we study this book. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.